This is Andy Ricker. You're listening to the Mike Sappo Podcast. Pom Pen Chef Andy Ricker and a cop. You're listening to the Mike Sappo Podcast. I'm not the one who's so far away when I feel the snake bite enter my veins. Never did I want to be here again. And I don't remember why I came. Is that my buddy Andy Ricker on the line? The two-time James Beard Award winner? What's up, pal? Thanks for calling in. Yeah, no worries. Andy, I miss Pock Pock in Brooklyn. You going to come on back? Well, I come back, but the restaurant's not. <laughs> Do you miss anything about the city yet? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I love I love New York, and I, I haven't left. I mean, I still own an apartment there. Um, uh, I, I'm coming less frequently, but I'm still coming to New York. Wait a minute. You still come to New York? So why are we not doing this show live yet over drinks? Well, because I'm not actually in New York right now. So. <laughs> hey, what's your favorite uh, New York City hangouts then? Well, I live in Sunset Park. Um, and, uh, I, I find, especially in my old age that I, I'm less and less likely to take the trip into, into Manhattan. And, uh, I just, there's so much to discover in my own neighborhood that, that I find myself, uh, mostly staying close to home these days. So there's a, there's several places, but, um, just for a beer, there's a place called, uh, soccer tavern that I go to all the time. It's very old school, uh, it's it's really it's very interesting. It's it's uh it's an Irish bar owned by an Irish guy, uh, but you know half or more than half of the people who hang out there are local Chinese guys. Um, so it's it's really kind of a, a great neighborhood pub. When you first moved to the city, where'd you live? You lived on the like Lower East Side. Uh, yeah. So when I first moved to New York, I was living in Chinatown, uh, in Manhattan. And then I lived, I briefly lived over on the, on the, uh, in Red Hook next to the restaurant. But then that apartment that I was living in there, we needed it for an office. Okay. So I moved right back to, uh, to Chinatown <laughs> in Manhattan. And then from there, I, I lived in Wallabout, which is a, I, you, I, I hear you about to say, what the hell is Wallabout? Uh, and uh, it's a neighborhood over by the Brooklyn shipyards. Um, so I lived there for about a year before I found my apartment in Sunset Park. I was actually out two nights ago with my girlfriend, and we walked by East Broadway because, oh, might have been a couple of years ago, you tweeted about Lamb Zhao, the hand-pulled noodles. Do you know they moved from East Broadway to Bowery, and it's kind of like a fancier place now. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw that they'd done that. I think that their children have kind of stepped in and started helping stuff. They're, they're on social media and stuff like that now. Um but when I was going there, it was, you know, it was my neighborhood place. I'd walk up the block and little tiny shop. And, um, you know, I just, it was my neighborhood hangout. And it, since then, it's kind of become more of a big deal. Uh, uh, but I have not been to the new spot yet. I want to tell you, when I found out Pock Pock was closing, I made a bunch of reservations. I think I made like four in like a 10-day period. And the last night I was there, I got to meet you and my girlfriend. And because of doing the podcast and working with Opie, 
I've gotten to meet so many celebrities and athletes and meeting you, it's going to sound so corny and I'm not trying to just like blow you up. It was one of the coolest fucking things ever. And you couldn't have been kinder to me, and my girlfriend. So I just want to thank you for that, man. I really appreciate that. <laughs> that, that is corny as hell. But, <laughs> but, thank, but thank you very much. Yeah, that's, that's very nice of you to say. All right. So you Pock Pock leaves Brooklyn and you venture to Sin City. How, how's Pock Pock Wings doing in Vegas? And what was it about Vegas that sold you to go out there? Well, first of all, the, the Vegas wing spot is a licensing deal. We're not actually managing it. Okay, uh, okay. I was approached by the folks who, uh, who kind of uh, curate that stuff for, for uh, the, the culinary stuff for the Cosmopolitan. They had this idea to do a food court. And the idea was they wanted a bunch of brands that, that they didn't want to do like, you know, uh, Subway and McDonald's and, and uh, Starbucks. They wanted to do Lardo, um, District Donuts, uh, Hattie B's Hot Chicken, Pock Pock, Ghost Donkey, and Tekka. So, you know, it, it, it's pretty bold to, to put in, you know, sort of like the most Main Street location in all of America. Basically, you get everybody in the whole United States, uh, you know, lowest common denominator, um, uh, broad sampling of, of America walking through there. And the safe thing to do is get the tried and true proven fast food concepts in there uh, because that's probably what people want. But instead, they decided to go with brands that are well-known within the food world, uh, you know, the independent food world, but not well-known outside of that. And, um, you know, with the emphasis on uh, having food that's craveable, that has a story that, um, you know, uh, gives people something besides, you know, choice, choice of white or brown colored bread and, and fillings. And, you know, it's, I, I, it was the way it was posed to me was, attractive a b the deal was relatively risk-free uh and c i like the people who who were involved and you know ended up meeting all the team that's uh taking care of all this stuff and then you know they're busting their humps trying to trying to recreate all these different concepts there and keep them true to 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 their original origin uh so that you know that's that's why uh, did it also for me? It's it's kind of a proof of concept. We have this pock pock wing thing, and we'd like to grow it. But you know, I'd like to know: does it have legs outside of of you know the markets that that pock pock's been active in already? So we're going to find out. Any thoughts on opening up a full pock pock restaurant there? No thoughts on that whatsoever. I did some research on you, Andy. You and, see if, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. saw the definitive no chance. So I'm going to jump to the next thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, so I did some research on you. Everyone knows you as the James Beard uh, winning chef, the white dude who crushes northern Thai food. But I looked you up. You're a painter, a musician, a line cook, a rock climber. You said in an article, I believe, that you have this crazy addictive personality. What was it about cooking Thai food that I guess I guess I can say satisfy you or like reach the craving that you don't want to maybe experience or explore other things? Like you're pretty satisfied right now, correct? Yeah, I mean, I'm always curious. I remain curious. Um, it's just that, I, you know, I found something that that ticked a lot of boxes for me. I've always loved food. I've always loved cooking. I've always been involved in cooking since I, you know, was old enough to 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 do it. And I'm, you know, I've been doing it professionally for 35 years or so. 
it just so happens that this particular uh, cuisine is something that caught my fancy. And I, I don't know why, can't tell you. I think it's probably not just the food. I think it's the culture that goes with it. Uh, I think it had to do with personal relationships I had at the time with good friends who lived there. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, and the people who cook the food, too. It's, I mean, obviously, I, I live there now part of the year. And, uh, you know, it, it's now I consider it um, a home. So uh, why? I, I can't give you the definitive, you know, I was inspired by, by my grandfather's journey story. Like, I just don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it, just, it, just, it just is. I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Well, that was actually my next thing. I make a few bullet points, and my next bullet point thing was I've been to Asia maybe 15, 20 times. Uh, unlike you, I try to jump from like you know a few days countries here, a few countries you know a few days here, a few days in Thailand, in Vietnam. And I was going to ask, what about not just Thailand? Because you were in Thailand, then you ventured up to Chiang Mai. I was going to ask you what captivated you so much, and like you lived there for years. Like it was just something about Thailand that stuck with you. Well, I didn't live there for years. This is the thing that the people assume that I lived in Thailand for years, but mm-hmm. I didn't. I, I traveled there every year, um, but I didn't live there. And I did. I traveled extensively. I still do travel extensively all over Southeast Asia. It's not just Thailand. Uh, as a matter of fact, I you know I opened a restaurant with a partner here in Portland called Ping, and that was uh, food that was that we you could find in uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. Uh, southern China, parts of Thailand, that kind of thing, uh, Vietnam. So it's not it's not just the you know Thailand and to the exclusion of everything else. Um, but why do I favor Thailand? Maybe it's because I'm I've been going there for long enough that I speak the language conversationally and I have some insight and I just like the vibe there more than anywhere else. And you still go all over Thailand, or you just kind of focus up in Chiang Mai? Oh yeah, no. I mean, look, I it, I I, uh, I try to travel a bit. Um, uh, if I'm there for like three weeks, there's no way. I've just I've, there's too many things that I'm working on. I'm not going to be able to go off and do a trip. But uh, yeah, travel around. I often get on my motorbike and travel around northern Thailand by motorbike. So I've been to every province in northern Thailand on my motorcycle, all along the Burmese border, all along the Laos border, uh, all the way up to where you can get into into uh, Burma uh, in, in Methai. And, um, and I've traveled throughout Isan, uh, a lot of central Thailand, though not all of it. And, you know, uh, the, I haven't been to southern Thailand for a while, uh, for about a year and a half, I guess. But um, I'm fascinated by southern Thailand, too. So it's not, it's not just Chiang Mai, not just that area. It's, I'm, I'm interested in the whole country. Traveling's become so, I guess, mainstream now, and there's so many deals to shoot out to Thailand for a few hundred dollars on a flight. How do you feel? Because you've been there for such a long time before Thailand was like the cool place to go. How do you feel about tourism just all everywhere there? People are just always in Chiang Mai, and they're always all over. You cool with that? Not personally, but does that affect maybe your visit or the vibe there? Well, first of all, let's let's look at history. Um, when I first started going to Thailand in the '80s. They're on their second or third big tourism push, uh, where they were. I think it was at that time they were saying Thailand, land of smiles. Uh, Thailand has been a tourist destination since the 70s, 
early 70s when it was more of a backpacker destination. But by the time I got there, there were hordes of backpackers um, there going and hanging out on the beaches and stuff like that. And as time went by and the amenities became nicer, more and more up, you know, upscale stuff going. So it's not like Thailand hasn't been a cool place to travel to. It's just that they've expanded their tourism base massively. Uh, right now, the, the biggest uh, population of tourists in, in, in Thailand are the Chinese by a, by a, a long shot by an exponential amount. Um, so, uh, you know, Th Thailand has, uh, has definitely expanded as, as a, a place to go. And as it gets easier and easier to go, of course, more and more people are going to go. And as more and more people go, more and more uh, people hear about it. So they go. Um, uh, as far as how I feel about that is I, I feel fine about it because the vast majority of people who go end up going to the same damn places over and over. And if you want to avoid that, it's not that hard. <laughs> you <laughs> don't go where it says, you just pick up your Lonely Planet Guide and don't go where Lonely Planet Guide has, has listing. Holy, that easy. Dude, it's a it's, huge country. Yeah, it's so ironic. I try to read a book a week, and I just finished this morning, um, Unlikely Destinations, The Lonely Planet Story. And at the end, uh, Tony Wheeler, who started it, was pretty fair. He's like, if you want to step out the box buy a lonely planet and don't go anywhere we tell you because that's where everybody else fucking goes to the same places we go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's been the mantra for, you know, for 20 years. It's like you, you look at the, you look at, at lonely planet. When I first went, I, my first lonely planet guidebook was Southeast Asia on a shoestring. And it was, you know, it was a small book and it covered all of Southeast Asia. And basically if you have no skills, no language skills, uh, and you never traveled there before, this is great because back then it would take you to places that were still relatively uh, relatively un, untraveled. You know, there were obviously there were backpackers going through, but this wasn't, you know, tour companies weren't showing up to these places. Um, and, you know, it, even at that time, you'd, look, you'd end up in some obscure province that they actually talk about and they'd say things like, well, this, this is just a stepping off point to get to this other place. And you'd arrive in the city and, and what you'd see was like, wow, this is, I would end up staying in the places where they said, this is a stepping off point to go to this tourist destination. I'd just hang out in that place because there was enough information that I could get by. But then there was like all the stuff going on in the city that they didn't talk about that you could also explore. So, for instance, if you go, at, you know, I remember going to Korat, which is um, one of the a major city in Ethan, north of, of Bangkok, about a half-day ride. And, uh, you know, I, I remember touching down in the city, going and looking for uh, a couple of famous dishes, and then I spent, like, three days just wandering around the city, you know, and there was no guide guidebook for that. So, you know, guidebooks are guidebooks. They're there for you to, to uh, get to where you're going, find a place to stay, maybe point out some of the, 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 uh, the, the uh, local um, attractions. But then really, for me, travel has always been about uh, discovery, being curious, going out discovering, and, you know, not just following uh, the instructions on the internet or a guidebook about exactly what to do. That, that doesn't sound like traveling to me. That sounds like, you know, self-imposed exile to a tourist destination. Yeah. It sounds like restrictions. A lot of the things like, you know, to do in Cambodia, do one, two, 
three, four, and five, it's like, oh my God, like you're on such a strict itinerary. You kind of, it feels like you're kind of there on work a little bit, doesn't it? Like there's no relaxing time. There's no time to just, listen, you'll get your picture of Angkor Wat. You'll get your beautiful picture of the temples, but the best times you have is just like legit just chilling there and they love seeing Westerners. They want to come talk to you. It's just, that's the whole experience. That's what you remember more than the fucking picture of the Eiffel Tower. Don't you agree? Yeah, for me, like you, you go, go like uh, an easy way to test this is to go to one of these tourist destinations, like Hoi An, go to the market at Hoi An and you go there and then you, then just start walking and walk through the market, through the end of the market and just keep on walking and see what you find outside. Because as soon as you get, you know, a few blocks away from the tourist destination, you're right back in the thick of it. And, you know, there's just as likely to be something interesting there as there was back in the market that's aimed at tourists. I want to try you to know, bring food, mm-hmm. shops, people, that kind of thing. And who are so friendly. I know it's the land of smiles, but they're so friendly. Everyone wants to talk to you in these countries. They're so, if you step out of the comfort zone, it's such a fucking better experience, man. Well, it can be. You can also you can also have bad experiences, of course. Um, you know, but for me, again, it's it's uh, you know you you get out of it what you put into it. And if if what you do is go to a tourist destination and haggle with people who sell stuff to tourists, you're just another tourist, right? Uh, but if you go to a small village and you walk around, if you just walk into a small village and and interact with people, you're going to have a much more interesting experience than if you go to a stall that's selling sarongs and you know they're they're dealing with the ten thousandth sarong who wants to buy a sarong from them. You know, it's just a different experience. It doesn't mean that the, the buying a sarong is not a real experience. It is. It's just that you know you, you get a different one if, if you're not. You know, if you're not engaged in some form of uh, of commerce. When are you heading back to Thailand again? Uh, I'll be there in early November for a few weeks to do a gig, and then I'll be back. And then, I, then I'll be there from Christmas until March, uh, just living. I want to ask you, because we started the podcast talking about Pak Pak, and I want to try to bring it back to that, because... You know, sometimes I'll type in, especially when I knew you were coming on, and I don't want to read too, too much about you because then it sounds like a generic interview, but you're in Chiang Mai, you're inspired by some dishes. Where's that step, that ballsy step to say, okay, I'm coming to Portland and I'm opening up this Thai chicken spot? Like, one, how do you get the balls to do that? And two, what was it like, okay, this is going to work. I've worked in restaurants. How does that like one dish happen? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, I've been traveling in Thailand and, you know, the first time I went was in the, in the eighties. Right. Um, but that was just as a backpacker. And then I went again in 92 and then I was going pretty much every year. So for 13 years, by the time I opened Pak Pak Shack selling, you know, essentially two dishes with a few others, I had been going there and learning to cook for 13 years. Uh, I wasn't living there for 13, but every year for almost for 13 years, I was basically going back and studying, coming back and cooking. And um, uh, how did I get the balls? I put myself in a position where I had no choice. I went and, you know, I, I mortgaged my house uh, and, I, and I bought the location that Pak Pak was in. And, you know, it was at that point, it was like do or die. So I had to do it. And uh, so I did it. <laughs> That's where I got the balls. Are you still enjoying the whole restaurant business? Because you have a bunch of places in Portland. You still enjoying it? Um, I enjoy it less than than when I first started. I mean, look, uh, it's I don't know if enjoy is the right 
adjective to describe how you feel about owning and working in restaurants. I think there's, there's a lot of other adjectives. Um, there are moments of enjoyment. There's mom there are moments of extreme despair. <laughs> there are moments <laughs> of <clears throat> like very heightened excitement. There's like moments of dread. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, but at the end of the day, in order for you to go forward in this business, you kind of have to, to have some sort of affinity for it. Or uh, maybe, maybe it's you have a high threshold for pain. Or maybe it's all you know. Maybe it's what you know how to do. And, and you, you, you're like doing your best to, to do well at it. Um, so do I enjoy it as much as before? There are moments that I, of enjoyment that are equal to the ones that I had when I first started. Do I hate it? There are moments that I that of of extreme like disgust that I've had, uh, you know, since day one that that still happens. Um, uh, overall, I would say that the the restaurant business has gotten much more difficult over the years, and I can see in my you know in my life a time where I I could envision myself not being involved in restaurants anymore. Um, and uh, if you know anybody that wants to buy a whole bunch of restaurants, let me know. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I was introduced to you, not personally, in 2014 in Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain. How often do people bring up that one episode to you? Um, pretty frequently. Uh, you know, it, it was um, – I think that in a lot of ways that episode – kind of spoke to a certain part of, of Tony's audience, the people who just really loved the eat, eating and drinking part of Tony. And, and you know, towards, <clears throat> by the time we did that one, he'd done quite a few episodes that were less that and more sort of political observation, a little bit drier, not, not as fun feeling. Uh, not there, nothing to diminish what it was that he was doing because it was all fascinating, it was all interesting. <clears throat> it always had something to do with food, but a lot of times the the episodes he did during that time were less about the food and more, even more heavily tilted towards the the political or social aspect of places he was visiting. And this episode really was just about eating and drinking. It just was. We didn't we didn't get into the politics. There's plenty to talk about politically there at the time. Still is. Uh, we didn't get heavily into. Uh, you know, <clears throat> why the culture is the way it was. It was more about, hey, let's just go, let's hang out, eat lots of food and, and drink lots of booze. And that's what we did. And I think that that, um, that, that part of it just kind of like spoke to a lot of people who uh, kind of started loving Tony because of, of that part of his, his uh, shtick. How, fun, gig, how or, fun was that episode to film? Mission, whatever. <clears throat> well, here's the thing. Uh, if you've ever done TV, you know that, that um, you know, for one week shooting, you get, you know, 35 or 40 minutes of content and you pack all the fun, interesting stuff into the 35 or 40 minutes. Now, what really happens on TV shoots, and I, and I, and I hope, I'm, I, you know, that, that it doesn't ruins, ruin people's ideas <laughs> about what TV is, but a lot of it is hurry up and wait. You, you set up the shot, you go, you sit there. You get the shot, maybe you don't get it. You got to do it again, and um, then you leave, and then and then 
you arrive at the next location and you're sitting in a minivan waiting for things to happen, or at least Tony is. And then, well, it's time to shoot. And then you shoot it and you hope that you got it and then you move on. So uh, were we having fun when it looked like we were having fun? Absolutely. Was the shoot overall just like mayhem and fun every second? No, there's it's a, like shooting TV is, is like, can be really fucking monotonous. And, um, you know, I think that's something that's important to understand about what Tony's life was like. He, you know, he spent a great deal of time in relative isolation in strange cities and hotel rooms by himself in minivans by himself, even in the middle of the day on, on a shoot, he would, you know, he, he shows up, he gets out of the van, he does the scene, he gets back in the van and he goes back to the hotel. Uh, and you know, it's not, it's not like 24 seven party, uh, you know, the whole time. So, you know, it's, it's not that glamorous is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) How'd that episode come about? He approaches you and says, Hey, I want to do a episode where we're just going to hang out. No, 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 it wasn't that at all. I, I was getting ready to write this book, the drinking food of Thailand, which, which came out about a year ago. Um, and one of the conceits of the book was I thought I was going to invite people I knew from the food world to join me in Thailand and have a, have a drink and, and some snack and some food that, that revolved around the drinking. And part of it was going to be discovery. Like I'm going to go and find, cause I by no means know everything about this stuff. So part of it was going to be, let's go find places with these people, uh, and, and do chapters around that. Well, that, that conceit never really happened, but, you know, while we were coming up with it, I decided to email Tony and say, hey, uh, you know, because we, we, we share a, a literary agent and uh, we have other connections and he'd, he'd been to, uh, he'd done a No Reservations episode at Pock Pock in Brooklyn, yada, yada, yada. So I had, you know, we were in contact. Um, he had blurbed the first book, etc. So, you know, I, I emailed him and said, hey, here's my idea. Would that, you know, I know you're really busy, but you're in Southeast Asia. Would that be something you'd ever be willing to do? And like, no idea whether he'd say yes or not. And he came back with a very short answer, which was, well, it sounds like great. Why don't we just do an episode of, of Parts Unknown around it? That was it. It's like one sentence. And then he CC'd me with the producers and, uh, and off we went. And that was it? It was just that one sentence set the whole thing up? Pretty much. Hey, June in this year, he left us tragically, obviously. And I got to tell you, it's going to be one other corny thing. You were the first person I texted and emailed when I heard the news. And I'm not one of those guys who are like into celebrities or celebrity gossip or that shit. But he had such an impact on my life, like with traveling and just, listen, that show is one of the coolest shows ever. And it makes you want to go to these countries that people don't think about. And it wants you to step out of your comfort zone and you were like my bridge to him because you knew him. He had such an impact on my life. Did he have a equally big impact on your life? I think Tony had a, a really big impact on, you know, millions of people's lives. There was, there's this sort of, um, you know, that he was the kind of person that, that you felt like you knew him, even if you didn't know him, he was, he, he kind of made you feel like that because he was such a, you know, common man and he wasn't, he wasn't an actor, you know, that wasn't his, he didn't, some people do these shows and they're an actor 
and they get hired to do a show uh, and then they act. Uh, but what you saw on screen with Tony was what Tony was like, you know, and I think, and, and he was smart and he was articulate, but he wasn't condescending. And he, he kind of, uh, he was funny. Uh, and, and I, and I think that people would see him on TV and think, yeah, I know that guy. I could sit down and have a beer with that guy real easy. Um, and then, you know, all the things that he did, we could go on and on about all the things he did that, that kind of like uh, helped other people. But, you know, that was one of the things that he did is he used his power uh, and celebrity to help other people uh, that, that he believed in or liked or, or you know, he, he always had, a, a you know, some sort of word for you, uh, if, if you if you knew him and you sought out his advice. So, you know, uh, how did how did he affect me personally? He impacted my life. Um, well, for one, uh, you know, the, the dude blurbs your book. That's huge. So he, he puts your restaurant on his show. That's huge. That has a huge impact on your business side. On a personal side, um, you know, he, I found that, that Tony was uh, very, like a very good person to bounce ideas off. Like I, I didn't constantly ping him with stuff like maybe Jose Andres, cause we weren't that tight, you know, we weren't super tight friends, but you know, there were, there were certain times in my life where I was like, I had this idea uh, and I'd, I'd go, I'd email him and say, Hey, you know, what do you think about this? And he'd give me good advice. Um, I also, as in generally speaking, as far as the food world goes, especially the kind of food that, that I've spent my life kind of trying to uh, bring into the, into the spotlight. Tony was very good at going to places and, and going and democratizing, or sorry, what, what can I say? Taking, taking some of the mystery and some of the sort of um, shock value away from cuisines and cultures and saying, look, this is just, you know, these are people living and eating and you shouldn't, you shouldn't just, tag it as gross or weird or something. It's like, this is real. And, uh, you know, I think that that his impact on my world, the Thai food world is, has been huge. And I think you could say the same thing about, uh, so many other cultures and cuisines that he, he brought into the American living room so that people could look at it and go, this is human. This is, he humanized a lot of stuff like this, made it, made it real. He didn't glamorize it. I don't think. He, he made it. He made it. Uh, made it real for people. Yeah, you perf you perfectly described it by saying he hu uh, humanized everything, which is true. Listen, I bothered you for thirty minutes already. Is there anything you want to plug? Um, well, you know, I've, I, you know, the I've got a book coming out uh, in May. Uh, it'll be the third uh, book of the Pock Pock trilogy. It's it's uh, Pock Pock Noodles, and. Um, I don't know. I, I think you can. You're starting to see images of it on Amazon somehow. It, because it, it's out in the Random House or 10 Speed uh, catalog, but we haven't. There's no release. Uh, there's nothing. Uh, you can't pre-order it or anything like that. But look out for Pop Pop Noodles in the spring. Uh, I want to plug my buddy Austin Bush's book. He's the guy who did the photographs uh, for the Pop Pop books, all three of them. He's just come out with a book called The Food of Northern Thailand, uh, and that is available on Clarkson Potter, and that's available for pre-order now. 
He'll actually be in New York on book tour at some point in November. Uh, so look out for that. It's a really great hyper-specific regional cookbook that I think uh, is is kind of like the first thing of its kind in, in the English language that I've seen. It did a really great job on it. So look out for that. Uh, we'll finish up with this. How are your awesome cats doing? Because your Instagram is just dope food and then your two cats. How are your cats doing? Well, there's four of them now. So okay. there's uh, the original two, uh, uh, Jamuk and Yindi. And now there's, and then we got a third one, Nampu, who's been around for about two years now. And then uh, now we have one, a new cat named Hugh. And he is, uh, he's equally dopey, but he has his own personality. <laughs> so yeah, they're, they're, Nambu like spends her whole day trying to hunt and kill him. And he spends his whole tr day trying to avoid Nambu. And uh, Jamuk just kind of sleeps and Yindi goes off hunting. I so, was, yeah, I was never a cat guy. And, yeah, I was never a cat guy. My girlfriend who you met was like, we got to get a cat. So we just got one five months ago, Pickles. It's hands down the greatest oh, thing. Nice. Yeah, it, like it bothers. I don't. Even, I'm leaving on vacation in three days. We're going to like China, Hong Kong, and Cambodia. I don't even want to go. I hate leaving this little guy. It's like I'm like fuck. I'm I'm a cat guy now, and it it's like the best thing ever, though, isn't it? Uh huh. <laughs> you see. <laughs> hey, listen for real though. One day we're gonna do this in person. I have a bunch of chefs that come on. The Cuban Carl Ruiz comes on. Nick Solaris. We'll do it. We'll set it up. Maybe when you get back in March or whatever, and we'll knock down some drinks, man. And I just want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for your food, and thank you for your time, man. Thanks, brother.